Smart Council is a production of New Pattern Counseling, with additional support from Multnomah University. To learn how to support this podcast, visit patreon.com slash smartcouncil. Reese Basimio is a counselor, teacher, and writer, and the founder of New Pattern Counseling in Gresham, Oregon. His clinical specialties are addictions, gender, sexuality, and spirituality. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Smart Council, the Masculinity Diaries. Uh, Smart Council provides uh, counselors' perspectives on spirituality, mental health, addictions, relationships, and trauma. I'm Reese Bissimio. I am Jeremy Jones. And I'm Jacob Schwartz. Yes, and uh, great to have you fellas here with me in, in the... In the recording space it's not actually a studio um <laughs> but if, if i if i ever have a studio in which to have people that will be joyous and exciting but thanks for spending a morning with me um i would love for you to both say a little bit uh, about yourselves uh because i like you both very much and maybe some people don't know just how cool you are so please say who you are how cool you are and why uh, also what is your connection to the counseling world Etc. Sure. So I will go ahead and start. So as I okay. mentioned, I am G- Jeremy Jones. I am a licensed professional counselor. I have a private practice here in Oregon, and I've been working with telehealth for some time now. Uh, as a mental health counselor, I also work with substance abuse folks as well, as those two things definitely do not occur separate from each other. I have been working in the mental health field for about six years now, and Gosh, how does one evaluate their level of cool? <laughs> uh, and, and I feel that my my quote unquote coolness is definitely shown through my interests and hobbies. Uh, I'm very much more keen into the fantasy nerd focus, and uh, I, I feel that that's where my cool must shine. <laughs> uh, I, I knew we were friends for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> cool, thank you. Awesome. Well, uh, yeah, like I said, I'm Jacob Schwartz. Um, yeah. Wow. Cocking about coolness. Um, I don't know. I've never felt cool, which I guess is part of like, uh, could come up in this conversation, but, uh, no, I, I, I find myself delving into a lot of different, uh, aspects of the world and things like I, um, so I'm a software engineer by trade very sort of headspace engineering, very rote, we will do things this way and all that sort of stuff. And then uh, I'm also kind of more on the artistic side between like I do a little bit of music here and there. Um, I love cooking and and experimenting with new foods and things like that. And so um, just like a lot of that weird sort of balance and a lot of that is played in through tons of my life. Um, As far as my my connection to counseling and things like that. Uh, I am a lay person. I, uh, having, having gone to therapy and, uh, and counseling, um, for various issues. Um, I, that has been my primary exposure to this field. Which is, which is good and valid. And, um, I'm I'm actually like, you know, about to start up my my own counseling again too. Cause I figure, I mean, I've been a therapist long enough. I should be a client again for a little bit. So that's, it's a really valuable perspective. Um, but you were saying too, cause you, so you, you're coming at this from a different perspective Mm -hmm. as we're talking about, uh, narratives that that affect us, uh, masculinity narratives. There's a clinical approach to that. And then there's like a, a church approach to that. And you have some church background. Yes. And yes. I should have mentioned so, that. Thank you. Um, yes. so I, uh, I grew up, uh, primarily in the church, um, sort of Protestant background. I would kind of use the word evangelical, but that's got a lot of connotation with it. That's not how I would, would have seen my growing up, uh, and, and to each their own. Um, but I, so growing up in the church, I did a lot of music through the church. That's where I found most of my uh, my outlet for music. And I also worked quite a lot in youth ministry, um, working with high schoolers and middle schoolers throughout all of this. And you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, the church, um, at large, and then even, even culturally in smaller sections and groups has their own way of dealing with this, this idea of masculinity and what it means to be 
quote unquote, a man. And, um, you know, and depending on how, how well that is handled or how poorly that's handled, it can certainly cause a, what I have observed, uh, a somewhat unique style of, of trauma, because you also are adding that into, um, not just your, your growing up, but also into your spiritual development as well. So there's a lot loaded in there. And I'm really glad that we get to have uh, you both and me all together because, uh, and we've, we've done this on a couple episodes on the show before, but talking about the intersections of the, the counseling, the clinical world and the, the spiritual world or the, the church world anyway, because they, they, they are in reference to each other, whether they like each other or hate each other. But uh, it's, it, I think it's good to intersect those two at times. So, Jacob, you're starting to kind of tip us the direction of what our topic is for today, talking about masculinity, masculinity narratives. Uh, actually, Jeremy, this was your topic that you pitched, uh, and it's the one that I really love. I'm really excited to be delving into it. As a, as a starting point, so um, I'd like to have us all share a story from our lives and how we've interacted with masculinity narratives. And in particular, and, and there's a little bit of a bias here, but in particular, what are some ways that um, the, the masculinity narratives as they are, have been challenging for us and challenging is maybe a nice and mild word. I mean, we could, it might've been maybe more devastating effects. Um, but, and so I'll, uh, I'll go kick us off there um, to, to set the tone for that. So, um, a few years ago, my family um, was privileged to buy a house, and uh, that came with all of the stresses that, that go with that. Um, at the time, uh, the housing market being what it was and my income being what it was, uh, <laughs> there wasn't much we could afford. Uh, and there were, so, there were um, as we were looking through houses, there's all the nice ones that were way out of a price range. And then there was like a whole bunch of there's a handful of uh, houses that were like well within our price range, even you know, kind of cheap, but were like the total fixer uppers in project houses and like the house where you'd say like, Oh yeah, I mean, you, you could buy it for, you know, like, you know, half the price, but you'd have to like put in a new roof and redo the walls and paint it and, you know, got it and everything. And, and I remember uh, thinking through, through at the time we had several, quite a few people in our lives who were carpenters and who were handy and were able to do that. And, and I knew like, well, if, you know, so-and-so uh, bought this house, they could totally do it. Cause they, they, they know how to like gut and rebuild a house and they know they're really handy that way. And um, you know, and it was, it was a couple of my guy friends. And I remember this really, really, really strong sense of like in inadequacy and anxiety and stress and kind of despair. Thinking like, I could be saving my family a hundred grand if I were just more handy and I knew more than how to pound in a nail. <laughs> and uh, which, and I, I don't know, there's, there, there's some truth to that. Like, I mean, handy, you know, handy carpentry skills, I'm sure are really, really useful. And there's just a skill set I never really developed. And, but I think like, like the inner dialogue in my head was particularly notable as like really, really feeling like a lesser than man because I didn't know how to like get a house. So um, anyway, that's my, that, that's my sad, my sad masculinity story. <laughs> what do you, what do you guys got? Sure. Uh, so I actually really appreciate that you talked a lot about, um, even the feeling of despair and how that can sit mm -hmm. in, because when you had actually asked me about to kind of identify a time where the confines of the quote unquote man box or limiting masculinity as to where it really kind of dug its hold in me, uh, I was actually really thinking of it from that masculine narrative kind of standpoint and really thinking of my life from a narrative perspective based off the messages that I was kind of given and instilled growing up. Um, the thing that kind of really hit me that I really realized that I want to kind of focus on was discussing about my, uh, mindset around graduate school counseling. So I do have my master's in applied psychological science from Pacific university here in Oregon, but prior to actually getting into college while I was still in high school, I had started to develop a very, I don't want to say twisted mindset, but it was a very fixed mindset in stating, well, what does success mean? How does it, how do I measure success? What are those benchmarks that I measure success from? 
And even looking back, because I like that uh, Reese mentioned about even therapists needing that therapy, as I had to really find a lot of these things out through my own therapy, is that primary message that I never really learned that I think is one that's never really fully taught is how to lose as a male. Mm. I was never mm. taught any skills on how to be okay with losing. Mm-hmm. And with that high level of competition and just the idea that success has to be gained and achieved rather than just something that you can work into or work towards, it has to be kind of that all or nothing thinking. Well, it got me into the mindset that really that my success and my happiness were going to be based off a benchmark. Once I get to there, I will be happy. And unfortunately, I had a lot of influences around me at the time that were really enforcing that idea. Um, I had parents who were very supportive, but very much of the mindset that said, no, be successful, Uh, be the best, be the top of your class, be number one. And I never learned how to be number two in that situation. And so what I found was that because I had created a benchmark of success that I could never really live up to, uh, while I was in my master's program, I was applying for a doctorate program. Actually, I think Reese, I think we might have talked about this when we used to work together. Mm-hmm. And in my head, I had it that I could only be happy if I got into a doctorate program. And even now, it kind of sounds silly because I'm, I'm equating happiness to an achievement, not so much my life pursuit of counseling and helping people. It was just that I wanted those letters after my name. And because I... I didn't get into uh, any doctorate schools. That extreme just paradigm shift that I had to fully experience, the idea of, hey, well, you did not meet that measure of success, and that's okay, wasn't something I could really mesh with. And the detriments can really be seen because who, who do I talk to about that? Do I talk to my brother, who I perceive as being one of the most successful male competent individuals out there do i talk to my parents who up until this point have only seen and prided me on the success and achievement that i've had do i turn to my friends and say hey i'm not doing well and then maybe have their perception of me change it was all this perceived Mm -hmm. judgment rather than actual judgment and i i remember being in such a low place that the idea was that and uh for those that don't know there are some pretty uh, twisty, windy roads here in Oregon, I, it was just such an unhealthy headspace that I would go there. And at times it would very much be of just like, well, what if I just close my eyes and take my hand off the wheel? It's, it's an inactive or a passive way for me to still be able to solidify this ideal state of who I am to other people of, oh, well, he was on his way to achieving. He was, he was doing so well. And that, that that just did not that <laughs> that does not mesh well with the idea of living life to its fullest or even living life and this idea again that it was such a level of hopelessness such a degree of just feeling down that there was no way or no opportunity for me to express myself and i want to still acknowledge i am a counselor so i, I know this now <laughs> after the fact but trying to live that and even as a counselor i had to ask myself is How can I be a counselor if I'm experiencing these thoughts and feelings that I'm supposed to be able to help others through? Well, I didn't see that as the strength it really was at the time, because having that strength to be able to look at someone and say, I don't know what you're going through right now, but I can tell you that the hell that I've been can at least tell, let me tell you, or at least give you some support on how to get through that. Um, So it really led to a very low period of time in my life. It led me to really get connected to counseling, to get my own therapy, to build up those social supports and start working on recognizing that any of my perceived weaknesses are really just areas of growth. And that if I do want to grow as a person to be a fully, fully functional and fully developed individual, that I need to see those areas as areas to work on, not areas to uh, chastise myself or to belittle myself for not being successful at and i feel that that has developed a healthy mindset and it does it is a reason why i do love talking about this and it is why i really appreciate you reese and jacob for coming in here and being able to also share how even the the societal the interpersonal the religious spiritual aspects of masculinity how it really can impact us to varying degrees and how that 
really manifest because it's an area that we don't really ever get to talk about too much Mm -hmm. because how often do you have three males together that are saying, let's talk about our feelings. (laughs) (laughs) So I just want to say, yeah, I really appreciate that. And so that was kind of just my experience of how, how masculine narratives have really shaped or at least developed my mindset. And I still see that as it's a period of time that I look back at that, I have to look back at with myself with compassion and say, I have full compassion for Jeremy two years ago, who just, or three, four years ago, who just cannot get out of this. And that applying that comfort to the self is really where I found to be the greatest healing from that. Yeah. Thanks so much for sharing and for sharing at uh, a really great depth too. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I definitely want to echo that. Thanks as well. Like I, even with close friends, sometimes it's quite difficult to actually be able to, uh, to talk about this sort of thing. Uh, and so thank you both for the initiative, uh, in doing this. I certainly hope that my experiences can also help people. And while I'm saying these things, of course, this inferiority complex is speaking to me at the back of my ear. Um, but yeah, my, my experiences, uh, especially with the, that sort of, um, negative impact on how we how masculinity is, um, expressed, uh, definitely a lot of it came from my growing up in the church. Um, it's a lot of like, uh, smaller, but conglomerated incidences. And so, um, the, the particular group that I grew up around in the, in the church was very sort of like, if you were a man, you had to be Oh man, sort of a thing. And, uh, it, which really kind of didn't jive with me. Like there, there are pictures of like masculinity and things like that, where like being good at sports, I wasn't, my legs were screwed up for, uh, up until I was about 13 years old. Uh, and I had surgeries to correct, uh, the issue. And even after that, like, um, uh, to make a very long story short, my uh, my feet pointed out very, very far from my knees, which made things like running and other sorts of activities, uh, even walking for long periods of time, very, very difficult. We didn't even figure that out until I was like 12. Um, and so after that, like I had had already such a bad taste of athletics in my mind, like I just didn't really care to do anything of it. And so that compounded in the, oh, well, you're not good at sports. Um and so you're kind of like, uh, you're not really like manly enough or whatever. Um, I was a typically fairly emotional, uh, kid and lots to unpack there as to the reasons why, but, um, I would often express it in, in non-normative masculine ways to be certain, um, cried a decent amount up through, up through my high school years in public. Um, and so that of course, also piled onto it. And then, uh, on top of that, like having these, I had a couple leaders and one in particular with a youth group. And I don't, I don't think that he meant to be, um, um, really this, this sort of, um, mean or toxic or whatever, but he was definitely that sort of like, he'd, he'd, uh, uh, kind of, mostly joking, but do the whole, like, make fun of you. Oh, you're, you're acting like a girl right now or whatever. But when it sets often enough and over enough, like that, that, that starts to wear on you and it starts to, starts to really make you question identity and worth worthiness, uh, just to be in, in the room where you're at. Like I'm, I'm not an athlete. I'm, not good with tools, um, got yelled at a number of times. Didn't your dad teach you this? Well, no, he didn't. And I didn't realize that wasn't my fault for a long time. Um, and all these sorts of things. And so I felt very much like, well, I'm not worth being here. Um, and so that, that made me start to push, pull, pull away from some of my relationships of the time. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was, it was tremendously difficult. And so to have that also be where you're developing spiritually adds this whole other level. Cause in, in a lot of Christian sects, we put a very heavy emphasis on, you need to honor your parents and you need, if you're a guy, you need to be like your dad. If you're a mom or excuse me, if you're a woman, you need to be like your mother. Um, and my, my dad, nobody really saw this in the church that I was I growing up in, my dad was an alcoholic. 
Um, he was heavily addicted to opiates and, and for various reasons, he struggled with constant and severe pain for most of my life. And so I, on one hand, saw this incredibly angry person who, who we often didn't talk unless it was for him to chastise me about something that I did wrong. Um, and just be very angry, which nobody really saw that. Um, but then on the other side have this group of people who I'm also supposed to be looking up to saying, no, 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 you need to look up to him and you can't question, you can't do these things, um, or, 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 you know, go against him or whatever. And so like, that's, that's a (laughs) bit of a traumatic experience growing up. And it's taken me a long time to be able to take those feelings and, and at least express them. Um, I learned throughout all of that, through all of that chastising that, no, I can't talk about this. And it's like an incredibly lonely place to be where you're being told all of these different conflicting things. Like, I feel like I am, I am being hurt from this person. And yet I'm told that I need to look up to them and I need to be more like them. Um, it's, it's tough. Um, definitely contributed to some thoughts on, um, on suicide. It wasn't, blessedly it wasn't um incredibly deep but it's that that type of loneliness it eats at you uh and it's certainly nothing that i would wish on even my worst enemy wow jacob thanks for sharing and um i mean i i had known some of your story before but like i mean you you draw some really deep and some sounds like kind of painful nuances in there um I'm thinking about like the like the loneliness in particular and i know that was a big part of my growing up too was uh you know feeling very cut off and and in this like i don't know why like i was i was my my memory of you know middle school high school was you know always trying to be friends and always thinking like i'm i'm nice i'm friendly i'll be a good friend but like you know why doesn't anybody like me and like and and, i mean there's problems in the Mm -hmm. community i was in but like you know as a kid you you internalize that and you think Mm -hmm. oh something something's wrong with me and that's um that's just terrible and some of that's making me think about um, the nar- the narratives, the the stories in our heads that we tell ourselves about um, about what it what it means. Um, I mean, specifically to men, or specifically to be a man. I mean, we could say some of this is like specifically like our narratives on what it means to be like a decent human. So there, I mean, there is that kind of broad level, but I mean, it seems like there there's particular challenges that that the men face. And particular narratives that um, that that we carry, um, yeah. What are yeah? Here in I guess speaking of narratives, and here in <laughs> uh, the narrative, the narrative that we carry. I mean, what are some of your your two thoughts about this? Oh, um, I mean, one having gone through that issues with with my own narrative in in toxic masculinity i'm i'm thankful that i've been able to start seeing these things um and and be able to relate to people in in a different way like my uh when i was working as a youth leader up until about three years ago uh, i think i was doing it for almost seven years um you know i worked with a lot of a lot of students who were from pretty broken homes and in different ways than I was, but a lot of them had this sort of, um, this sort of need to be a man. And, um, I wish that I had been able to express this a lot better back then when I was actually working with them, but to just, just to be there and to not, um, not critique or like kind of pound in that, no, you need to be a better man, but just to sit with all of that, like these, these narratives are, are important because they, they shape who we are today and they shape how we can help people. Um, and that's, that's, I guess where I'm kind of going with this. And I fear that I have kind of circled around the question. That's okay. It was a, it was a, it was a pretty big question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's okay. We'll focus on it. Um, I I would wonder though. So, uh, Jeremy, you'd had some thoughts about something here, and and I want to hear more more what you're thinking here. So, in talking about masculinity narratives, uh, you, it's it's common that we hear this term toxic masculinity, and it gets thrown around a lot, and it's kind of a buzzword. Some people really love it and really love what it stands for. Some people seem really offended by it, uh, and maybe even threatened by it. And you, you'd um, you'd propose an alternative 
Fraser to, to talk about. And I wonder if you could say a little bit about that and, and why, why that's important. Sure. So uh, thank you, Reese. Yeah. Um, so the term that I will be kind of exploring, and I do want to note that I first heard this from an individual actually who works in Seattle. Uh, actually, uh, yeah, I believe so. Jonathan Decker, he's a licensed uh, marriage and family therapist, uh, I believe. And his terminology that he wanted to use was to incorporate this idea of utilizing the term limiting masculinity rather than toxic masculinity. And the reason why I resonate so well with that idea is that my the focus of my practice is very much on really kind of examining the verbiage nomenclature and the the words that we really utilize in our day-to-day life because if we think of this male or masculine narrative well we also have to be mindful of the importance of words that actually come in to perpetuate or reinforce a lot of these ideas and Jacob I love what you said about this uh concept of just it is healthy to hold on to these narratives and it is good because they help with our development. And I think it's also important to note that we are also the authors of our own narrative and that while we can take from these external sources, we we have control of the pen to rewrite it or mm-hmm. adjust it as, as we see fit. So when we look at the word even toxic, if we were to approach, let's say, just a random sampling group of males and said, how would you feel about being called toxic? Mm. I would imagine that the instant response would not be, oh, maybe <laughs> let's examine this and process this. It might be met with that automatic no or that rejection reaction kind of response. And I, I love the term limiting because it really just indicates this this societal cultural man box problem that we kind of have where – societal norms or cultural aspects or interpersonal development have led it to males being confined to very rigid ideas or beliefs on how they should act or behave within the world. And because of that, and because it's reinforced through a lot of various sources, Maurice, you mentioned there are so many influences around us that play into this that I could attribute to one thing, but it could totally be about multiple uh, different impactors that we really have to just kind of look and see, well, how how can I resonate with this? How can I take this and see this as something to work on? That area of growth, not just an area of, of quote-unquote weakness, because males with the term weakness can be, it just doesn't really gel with them, because that's the idea of, well, males shouldn't hold that weakness. And even when we talk about narratives, if we think about narratives, even in a literary sense, we know that uh, narratives have themes, they have patterns, they have structures to them, just like we do as well. So in examining the three kind of personal experiences that we all touched on, I don't know if you all noticed, but there was three prominent themes that really show up. And I feel that these themes themes really resonate through a lot of other people. Uh, These Themes are toughness, um, just the notion that men should be physically strong, emotionally callous, and behaviorally aggressive. Uh, Anti-femininity basically involves the process and the idea that men should reject anything that is considered to be feminine, such as showing emotion or accepting help, which we'll probably touch on a little bit later about the accepting help part. (laughs) And then the third one was power. And of course, this Mm. really resonates with my story is this the assumption that men must work towards obtaining power and status, social or financial, to gain respect from others. But really what that's saying is, well, we don't have that self-respect, so it must rely on that external validation. And this is when we start taking our narrative and comparing it to everyone else's narrative or the standard male narrative. And... um, like I mentioned, I, I I love nerdy stuff, fantasy, sci-fi. And so I really take this idea of a fantasy narrative and kind of imagining how someone would shape or grow up with certain stories or life lessons or ideas and those certain words that we are kind of taught or given growing up that really shape us into who we are. Uh, and I, I, I want to take a quick brief aside to talk about a great example I mentioned the other day that I think really speaks to this idea of narratives, even from a more cinematic standpoint so i mentioned that a movie that i both think is very funny but i have huge critiques with because of how much it perpetuated a lot of these issues is talladega nights the tale of ricky bobby for those that don't know it's will ferrell humorous movie or it's supposed to be but it really it does one of the best jobs i've ever seen of highlighting limiting masculinity in its entirety course throughout human development 
we have this young boy who's missing a father figure and he gets told, hey, well, you can be a race car driver like me, but you have to be first or you're last. There's nothing but the best. You only accept the best. You see this character, you can see them develop throughout life, the choices they make, that they are more prone to the glorification of unhealthy habits than adopting these healthy, pro, proactive habits. And it just leads to and unfortunately, it mirrors a lot of the situation that I was in where it's it's the inflexibility to accept that things could be different, that you may not be the best, that your skill set, someone else may have worked harder, have tried harder to reach that level of achievement. It just doesn't mesh. And it only in the end do we find this reckoning where Ricky Bobby gets to confront his dad and tell him, I've lived by this model my whole life. And the dad's saying, why? You could be second, you could be third, you could be all of these things. And yet that, that, those simple words mm-hmm. shaped and developed an identity from that because it was perceived as being the identity that could make that connection that was missing with that father figure or even to masculinity. And I, I feel that that is a great, depiction of the characters now of course we see the humorous side of it but even at the end we see at least some recognition from the role of the main character embracing another male in a compassionate embrace it it is something that you wouldn't have expected from the beginning but it it shows this so it's a weird movie to kind of compare to this too but i think it really shows the impact that words can have on how we create those narratives or how we live by them or how we assume that they must be and thus, we create those walls of the man box that we are kind of stuck within. Yeah, thanks for sharing. I mean, those are some good thoughts. Um, and I mean, that's sort of that sort of like media example um, is not entirely implausible either. I mean, I think a lot of us have heard variations of messages of like, uh, you know, be the best, be all you can be. Uh, um, I mean, there's so much media tangent we could go on. Uh, <laughs> uh, like I know it, an example I often think about talking about like kind of like media influences, like I, I, I think about fight club, like the, yeah. the movie, the book, completely brilliant pieces of art. Uh, and, and I love them very much, but I, there's a way I feel like the, you know, kind of the, the, the fight club mentality kind of embodies another aspect of masculinity where it's like, Hey, you know, the first rule of masculinity is you don't talk about masculinity. And the second rule of masculinity <laughs> is you don't talk about what this thing is. Uh, there's that. Um, but I don't know. I mean, it's this movie that you know depicts you know this this person who's you know in existential despair and and isolated, and the solution is violence. You know, you use violence to satisfy your feelings. You use violence to you know conquer a woman. You use violence to bond with other men, and it's like really destructive. Uh, I mean, super super entertaining in that context. But uh, but it just yeah, it's 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 a it's a thread of it's a threat of this this particular masculinity narrative that uh, violence and aggression are okay, even expected. Um, so, and it kind of. So, go ahead. Well, I was just kind of wondering off that, and Jacob Reyes, I'd love to hear your kind of thoughts because we were mentioning this a little bit uh, previously, but this glorification of the unhealthy habits, mm. of the glorification of these unhealthy traits. I, I'm struggling because even from the Fight Club references really is this idea of how do we get out of that how Mm. do we tell people that those traits should not be glorified when Mm. everything around us is telling us glorify violence action Mm -hmm. aggression dominance all of these things yeah i i think that's really valuable and i and i do want i do want to like dig into that i um looping back for a quick tangent um so, so when we're talking about like the, these limiting masculinity, limiting masculinity narratives, um, I, I can talk this morning. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think when used casually and maybe unthoughtfully, I think it would be pretty easy to have like a stereotype in mind. And and I know for me, like like my 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 inner critics, uh, they tend to pick on like like the like the the jock. Uh, persona or like the, the 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 hunter the hunter persona or you know it's it's my my stereotype is you know the guy with like the gun and like this cut off flannel shirt and he likes to hunt and play football and drink beer and everything <laughs> like i don't like hunting and i drink wine um so <laughs> uh 
Um, and so I, I think it is important to 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 point out where it's that there, there's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. You know, there's nothing. There's nothing wrong with being a jock. There's nothing wrong with playing football. Uh, there's well done ethically. There's nothing wrong with hunting. Uh, and so and I think we're we're not we're not addressing that. We're not addressing any particular aesthetic of how people look or how people dress or or, or talk or anything or, or activities they do. Um, there's there, there's a different set of like more internal internal things, internal like attitudes. Um, and um, and I know like uh, Jeremy, you, you presented this this list of them. Uh, you want to quickly read, and you mentioned a couple, but do you want to kind of read off the rest of the that list? Sure. Uh, yeah. So just to let folks know, so what I'm actually going to be reading off is a list of uh, norms. These are norms that were first developed through a just a, a standard inventory that was made uh, back in the 1980s. And they come up with seven like more masculine themed norms uh, that they notice as it relates to kind of more of that limiting masculinity or limiting behavior. So the seven that they kind of identify are and those th- three themes that I mentioned do, like Reese was saying, fit in these. So the first one is the avoidance of femininity. Second one is the negativity towards sexual minorities. Self-reliance through mechanical skills. Reese, I think you were mentioning this kind of within your own story as well. Quite Yes, very much so. I have no self-reliance there. <laughs> uh, the uh, toughness, dominance, importance of sex, and restrictive emotionality. I think that, like you were saying, Reese, that those are really the traits that we're really focusing, not so much of how someone's external presentation of their uh, uh, their gender presentation, really, how they really feel comfortable mm-hmm. with it or how they want to show. But these characteristics are more in kind of personality traits, uh, developmental aspects. And so really, it's I think, Reese, what you're trying to mention is that these are those internal mechanisms are what we're really trying to focus on. I think so very much. But yes. Um, but yeah. Uh, Jacob, what are some of your observations on media narratives? And- oh my gosh. Media narratives. Um, yeah. I mean, talking, talking about the differences between the, this sort of uh, gender expression versus these more internal personality traits, like um, media does definitely kind of tie those together quite, quite a lot. Um, I was just thinking back to, um, I mean, not that far back, but watching, uh, I was watching one of the, the latest Seahawks games and just like all the commercials were like that big pumped up masculinity, you know, advertising, I think Gatorade or something like that. Um, but it was like that very big picture of like, this is what it means to be a man to, uh, to be tough and to be tough. You have to have big muscles and to like all, all that sort of stuff. Um, and so it's, it's. Survive, or surprisingly pervasive throughout our our media um and even even talking through um like shows and sitcoms and things like that uh people or men who are not society's norm of masculine are typically viewed as kind of a comedy character almost um and in some ways that does help to break certain barriers but it's very very rare to see this sort of male character that you know, doesn't, or that's the protagonist or the main character or whatever that doesn't hit at least most of these, these traits uh, that Jeremy listed off. And so it's, uh, it's everywhere. I think it is everywhere. I took a, I'll have to find it. It might've been related to, there, there was a really great documentary that came out a few years ago called the, the masculine and Okay, I don't know. I don't remember if this is specifically connected, but somewhere when I was studying gender and everything, <laughs> uh, I found this this quiz on how to like score how to score like like movie characters, and it had to, it had to do with like you know the, these characteristics. And uh, I think at the time I was just starting to watch the the Arrow series. It's like the the DC Comics Oliver Queen, uh, and I took him through it. And I'm like, I mean, he totally failed because he's he's this uh, you know this character who is like not really in touch with his feelings. He solves his problems through violence. Like uh, he has a hard time asking for help. Although he kind of does as he progresses. Um, anyway. Um, yeah. So 
going back to this question then of recognizing there 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 are these narratives they they do come from all around us they they come from media they definitely come through from from parents and I mean Jacob I really appreciate you being able to kind of explore more of how your relationship with your dad was really impactful there and it's it's not not a not a unique scenario of um you know dads who they're emotionally distant or they're just mm-hmm. distant in general except for when it's time to correct you or, or mm-hmm. expect more of you in a way uh that, that's really powerful and then yeah you know the, the influences we get from our spiritual traditions from our school cultures from from work cultures um so yeah how do we how do we fix it <laughs> Well, I think this has been like, this is kind of a prime example of starting that. Um, You can't really address a problem until you can address the problem. Like if we're, if we're normalizing this sort of the same thing that we've uh, attributed to masculinity, like don't talk about masculinity. It's the first rule of masculinity club. Um, Then we can never really kind of break through and beyond this. And I think, um, having those spaces and honestly, a lot in personal life, at least in, in uh, my interactions, like being okay with um, like being potentially me being more vulnerable first and talking about these things and leaving just breathing room for it. Um, we're, we're in a culture today that it, it hates breathing room. It hates this sort of awkwardness in, especially in conversation Um uh, like thinking, thinking back even to my experience, uh, I lived in Silicon Valley for three years up until just a month ago. And it was always go, 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 do, do, do. Like there's no room for this sort of uh, deeper introspection and, and questioning. And so leaving room for that, um, it provides the door, at least in my experience. Mm-hmm. Actually, yeah. I, I absolutely agree with you. I think that both the those individuals that are able to give this space provide this space but also be encouraging and enthusiastic to those who contribute into it i i feel privileged on the point that i get to work with some folks who therapy on this but i do recognize that that is a unique bubble that we're able to examine these on a very very personal in-depth level and so one of the ways maybe Maurice, to answer kind of your questions we need to look at um, systems or programs that are already trying to tr- either translate the material by changing the wording on how to how to get that typical stereotypical jock male to actually have conversations like this uh, there's this fantastic group in Colorado I believe they run a program called man therapy their whole program is geared around how to present material to males that typically show those seven norms in a way that they would still be receptive and responsive to rather than kind of that automatically shutting down or that minimization of those, again, potentially perceived uh, feminine behaviors or that Mm -hmm. even self-care can be perceived as that. And so these groups, I I find it fascinating. What they did was their, their way of getting to those individuals were to uh, create uh, the little urinal cakes. They, they made urinal cakes. They made uh, billboards. <laughs> they made coasters. They, they did everything they could on how to reach individuals where they were at rather mm-hmm. than saying, hey, you need this or I'm going to pull you into this idea. Rather, this gentle guiding. And again, it's, it's approaching with compassion and not yes. this idea of shame. You need to be shamed because that, that shame is just going to be internalized and then it's going to be, well, how do males experience a lot of emotion? It can be seen through anger or anger reactive response. So that we looking at those programs and then there's other programs like one called manhood 2.0 that specifically works on uh, teenagers and adolescents on teaching these uh, ideas and these concepts during key developmental periods. Cause like I mentioned, I was never taught how to lose, but I was also never really taught a lot of these concepts of what it means to be a fully developed male in a society living with male and non-male or non-male identifying individuals rather than just a male-centric kind of world. So that is the place to start. I think that it's going to be hard. And the question Mm -hmm. will be is... We can look at us three and say, well, there was some shift or changing point that got us to maybe where we are now. 
how then to maybe apply that to others? And is there a way to do this on a greater scale that we can have a big enough impact that we might be combating those media stereotypes simultaneously? Because it seems like those might be omnipresent. And even those ones we have seen shift and change over time to, again, create specific narratives or schemas about certain personality types. Um, We are now even seeing that the, uh, the, geek nerd is now becoming the bad guy in a lot of movies because they're utilizing their smarts and you need a tough person to come in and just save the day. So it is, it is odd. And it it seems like that's what the struggle is going to be is how do we kind of stay ahead Mm -hmm. of a lot of the reinforcers or walls that are really making up the walls of this man box. Mm -hmm. I I love what you said, um, just hitting the nail on the head about this whole idea of, of shame and it not working. Like we, um, and I love that we kind of shifted over to this idea of instead of toxic masculinity, masculinity, see, I'm the one who's having problems today, um, of, of limiting masculinity. And we see like this sort of sort of shame thing. Uh, that's, that's where I tend to get on my soapbox a little bit. Cause I find myself in uh, interacting with a lot of different aspects of, of the world, I suppose was especially politically speaking. Like I grew up in a very red sort of town and then I found myself being um, much more around Democrats and finding like, Oh, I kind of like these people better, but, uh, but, and both sides, both sides, deal with this so much like this shame like um like uh, speaking specifically like from the blm movement i saw a lot of like you're a racist but not nothing beyond that which yes i mean that we need to speak truth and we need to we need to call call uh call it for what it is but at the same time um do you want to feel better about yourself or do you want to change what's going on. And the sort of same idea applies absolutely to toxic masculinity um, because it's, it's also got that visceral sort of like, you're calling me toxic. Um, And instead, like if we want to see the actual change, like we have to, we have to leave room for, for grace and compassion. Absolutely. Definitely a lot of grace and compassion. And uh, I mean, thinking just about how like these major movements, move and or just thinking about how people change and and i think jeremy you, you point you mentioned like all of us coming to a shifting point in our own lives and i would agree i'd say i mean definitely for me there were points in my life where i realized hey like something's wrong or something painful happened or here's a way that i'm not like these other people and and kind of organically you know, providentially, I came to points where I became more ready to see and more ready to learn. And, and at that point, I was able to learn. And I think one thing uh, important to remember is that uh, trying to change someone who doesn't want to change will only create more defensiveness. And so mm-hmm. I think you have to be kind of careful in like how we go about this. Um, again, given given kind of what these masculinity narratives are that we're talking about, I think there's a lot of defensiveness and a mm-hmm. lot of or you know, men feeling insecure and threatened and, uh, and, and that's, we, we can say that's okay. That's not a bad thing. And, 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 but the, the reflex though is, well, when I feel insecure and threatened, I'm going to put up my defenses and those can be quite abrasive. So I, I'm thinking that, um, for sure it's something that's important to do is, is, is model it. I mean, we have to live out Absolutely. the kind of manhood that, that we, that we really believe in. And some of that will show up uh, in the media we consume or don't consume. I mean, that might be a step to consider, like just like no longer consuming media that like, you know, glorifies these particular principles. Uh, that would definitely include the porn industry. Uh, um, mm-hmm. And maybe some, another step is how we go about conversation. Like, um, I mean, it's really easy. And I'm noticing this too, as I'm, you know, crawling through my thirties, like the, like the, as I'm interacting with like older men or men my age and older, like it's, there's patterns of speech. There's patterns of conversation that very, that stay very safely nestled in um, parenting and housekeeping and work stuff. And, you know, my circle is a little bit of theology now and then too, because um, we can talk about theology without talking about feelings. Um it's a very special relationship where we get to talk about our inner life and our vulnerabilities and hopes and fears. And it probably takes some fellows who will be open to 
persistently taking the risk of taking the conversation there. Um, and for a while, like you may not, nobody may go there with you, but mm-hmm. you know, this is, this is a long-term process. Um, and I think the, the other thing, and then I'll, I'll switch gears or let someone else talk. Uh, humor, I think is a big thing too. What we joke about, what we laugh at, what we allow ourselves to, to think is funny, um, especially in group settings. I mean, I think that communicates a lot. And, and I think Absolutely. especially, especially when we're around our kids, um, cause you know, joking about, Oh, like you run like a girl or whatever. Like it's, it's not, I mean, we, we laugh at it. It's, it's not funny. It's, is very toxic and it's very, I mean, very disparaging against women too, by the way. Um, yeah. But yeah, the, the humor we use, I think is a huge, huge factor. Oh yeah. There's, there's absolutely a thread of truth to every joke. Yes. Or a thread of truth of how the, the joker is feeling. Yeah. We'll call it the joker. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And I, I find it interesting, even the statements, uh, that you were making race about just kind of some of those things of, Oh, runs like a girl or only babies cry. Or of course there are the other ones that I don't know if are podcast appropriate. So <laughs> keep those in sounds, but it, yeah, it's, yeah, this, yeah. it's this idea again of, well, how, how do we minimize males? Well, we comment on their toughness. We say that they are feminine. We say that they have reduced power capabilities. And again, it's this idea that says we do this in a way and I, I mean, of course, we can see it as, well, joking, teasing is all well and good, but we can also see it as, well, there's hierarchy within that power dynamic of saying, well, someone is less than me and I can feel good about myself because I'm acting in this way. And one of the things, and it's it's why I think the key focus should really be on teens and adolescents is we also see how these jokes or these ideas negatively impact males' likeliness to engage in helping behavior. If if we are around instances where maybe we are being bullied and no one's supporting us, and then we get into this self-perpetuating cycle where we're just saying, well, you should be able to stick up for yourself, shouldn't need someone else to stand in there. Well, then we start seeing these incredible rates that we've been noticing over the past years where men that hold those seven norms are less likely to stop. Instances mm-hmm. of physical assault are significantly less likely to stop or even comment on sexual assault. And that is really difficult because even one of the questions that some of the uh, materials that I work with people on ask is, and they're, they're not using questions and that's the idea. And I think Dick, what you're saying about just having that opportunity of providing the space and actually openness to talk about this also has to be willing to be uncomfortable about the conversations we have. And if there has to be a conversation that says, Hey, if you witness your best friend at the end of a party leaving with someone who does not look like they are able to give consent. What is your role in that? And that question is so difficult for a lot of people to answer because mm-hmm. it's very much of, well, what role do I take? How, how do I keep who I am? How do I keep my stability that I may have created around me with my friend groups, my social groups? How do I navigate this process to do what is right rather than just what will be the safest option for me yeah. and it, yeah, it takes a lot of humility it takes being willing to be unliked or to be unpopular or to be yeah. seen as cool uh, for a little bit and uh to be seen as you know that guy and like we make fun of like those guys who like you know uh i don't know we i mean we make fun of people who talk about these things um or get in like the too much too far into the social justice realm but but there's there's a lot of use to that, and so yeah, to 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 pursue I think healthy masculinity, I think humility is like a, a really essential component of that too. And just yeah, like referencing you know Jeremy, like you, you know you talked about those expectations to you know be be everything, whatever. I mean, I think like you know, and, and the the humility narrative you know allows you to say I can, I don't have to be, I am free from having to be anything in particular, and. I can be debased or put down and I'm kind of indestructible when I think about it. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I like what you said about I'm indestructible because Jacob, you had mentioned this earlier about even how, how difficult it is to identify one's worth or self-worth. Mm. And one of the greatest interventions I have for any person, and we can even kind of explore it here is 
if I were to just ask you now on a scale of one to a hundred, what you would rate your own self-worth at, <laughs> where would you rate it at? <laughs> and it's this interesting intervention because you have some people being like, okay, I'm going to really think about it. Maybe I'm going to put myself at a, a 73 out of a hundred. And obviously my response is, why is that not a hundred? Mm-hmm. No one else is rating this, but yourself. Can, can we have that willingness to say, I have that self-worth because I'm the narrative of my own author, or I'm the author of my own narrative, my apologies. <laughs> and what does it mean to take that ownership, that humility, that responsibility okay. that we can dictate, we can guide, we can direct, we can step out of that man box and say, gosh, all of those walls, all of those things were self-enforced, all of that that idea of, oh, well, I haven't cried in so long because crying makes me a girl or a baby. Well, gosh, when was the last time I actually heard someone say that statement? Mm. It's probably mm-hmm. been 10, 15 years, maybe. And and yet that is still something that will come up and something I think about in relation to my actions and my behaviors. So yeah, the, the humility is there, but also our recognition of our self-worth is completely self-directed. And it can be what we want. And it can also be seen as, well, this is where I want to be and this is what I want to grow into. Rather mm-hmm. than utilizing this disparaging remarks or the toxicity, it is using hope that hope in people, that people can get better, that they can improve, that stepping out of that man box won't mean that they are shamed or belittled, but that they are encouraged and supported in developing a healthy sense of identity and a healthy sense of altruism and empathy for those around them. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would I would agree. I mean, I mean, why why not rate ourselves at a hundred? Uh, and because I mean, just why not? And again, so much of that is like contextual. Depends on like what you're looking at, anyway. Um, but I'm thinking, you know, building off of what you said, I would say, I mean, even even more so for for us within like the Christian traditions, who I mean, we believe that people are made in the image of God, and that image yes. is indelible and unchangeable, and like never goes away. And so there is an inherent goodness in all people, and that both means like, I need to, if I, I mean, if I really believe that, like, I'm going to see myself differently. And also if I really believe that I'm going to see people differently, I'm going to be able to, to venerate and honor like all of the people around me, because I believe that in doing so I'm venerating Christ. And so, you know, we, we, there, there's definitely a lot of ways to hold this, hold a sense of worth and, and to live life from a sense of worth and belonging. Um, I, I want to say, like, so it's kind of kind of working to, to wrap up, like, as we have been talking about this, um, and as I've been thinking about this and having conversations with people and trying to work this into, into my lifestyle, I, I am really delighted and really thankful to say I have encountered a lot of men who want this. Uh, I think there, I've, I've actually come to discover there are more men who are like me than than are than who are not. Mm-hmm. There's um, more more men of a variety of age groups and demographics who are interested in talking about feelings, who are interested in or interested in no longer being misogynistic, who are interested in in being healthy and being vulnerable and being humble and asking for help. And yeah, a lot of them are also like in recovery circles, so that's a different tangent. But um, but if you, if you like, and I just want to drop this out there for, for people listening who might think like, oh, I'm so alone and like my insights, if you're like a little enlightened, but I kind of want to say you, you might not actually be as alone as you think you are. Uh, mm-hmm. I think there, there are quite a few men who are dissatisfied with the narratives that are based on like achievement and perfection and power and consumerism and, and all, all of that. So there's, there's hope here. There's definitely hope here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and I, I, I think that's really hitting the nail on the head as we, as we come to try and figure out like what we can do about this. It is so much of this, this idea of limiting masculinity is tied into our self worth. Um, when we're, when I feel worthless, I, I will tend to add on these, these more ideas of an action out of, you know, wanting to be tougher, wanting to appear more dominant, wanting to, uh, do all these sorts of things. And so, if I'm not in a place where I can feel that I am worthy, um, these things are going to try and take their place to tell me that I am. Um, and, and if there's, if there's one thing that I could ever, um, 
impart to anybody who's dealing with anything like this. It is, it is that you are worthy. And I struggle with that. Oh, Lord knows I struggle with that on a a day-to-day basis. But if I am made in the image of God, uh, then I am worthy. And it's okay to call that call that out. Like we have such a tradition of shame, uh, so much uh, throughout Christian culture, which was never supposed to be. Um, and breaking, breaking that cycle of like, I am worthless or I am not worth enough because I am not these things, uh, is really, um, really where we have to kind of gear up towards. And it's a, it's a huge problem. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, Jeremy, any last thoughts for our people? Gosh, well, I honestly, I think both of you really kind of nailed it there. I think that it, it is this idea that we really see the hope. And I do want to acknowledge that, of course, the folks that I've seen that really do want this change are those that are really in treatment. A lot of them are getting to the point of males first time in counseling who are now just being given the opportunity to see that those those paradigms, those those structures of that man box they they don't have to be and it is pretty incredible to really come to that realization it takes a lot and i want to also acknowledge that taking that ownership and that self-directedness within life it can be very scary because it is saying well what does it mean for me to be responsible for my sense of self and well-being and having ownership over that well it also gives us that huge power to apply those influences to make those changes, to get out of our ruts, narratives, or try to work within the societal or cultural pressures we're in while still remaining our sense of true identity and not just feeling, who do I have to be to be the person that's accepted and liked by others? Instead, it's just, who do I want to be to love and accept myself? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think that is a good uh, pause point. We've thrown out a whole bunch of ideas and hopefully these ideas will start other conversations. And I mean, yeah. it's really like revisit this with, with you two at, at some point. Uh, but for now, if the listener were interested in contacting either of you for more discussion or questions uh, or anything, uh, what are some, where, where can you be found on the webs and et cetera? Uh, sure. So my private practice is called thinking about about thoughts counseling services uh you can find me on instagram at at tat counseling i try to post a lot of just information and psychoeducation about skills meditation mindfulness just to really kind of give some information as to well what mental health really is how it can look and the benefits really my goal is to give you the information for you to analyze and then if you do have those questions comments or concerns that i can be that uh receptive individual that might be able to answer direct all right. Thinking about thoughts counseling. Great. Good to know. Uh, how about you, Jacob? Yeah, for me, uh, I don't really have a tremendous amount of public facing uh, sort of stuff. But uh, if you do want to message me, Instagram is is something that I check fairly frequently. So my handle is uh, just Jacob Ray Schwartz, one word, J-A-C-O-B-R-A-Y-S-C-H-W-A-R-T-Z. Um I have a website of the same name, jacobrayschwartz.com. There's hilariously little content there. Uh, but if you're interested in, in knowing some of, some of my thoughts, primarily around uh, some stuff with church and then actually stuff in, in the uh, programming and how to help set up a website and stuff like that, um, there is also that as well. Excellent. Excellent. And when we do a sequel, we'll do it at your house so you can cook for us because yes. that would be amazing as well. Uh, awesome. Well, thank you both for being here. And thank you, dear listener, for hanging out with us and uh, for paying attention. And let's keep this conversation going. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. your feedback and invite you to share your thoughts about this conversation. Also, we'd appreciate your review and five-star rating on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Share your thoughts through email at smartcouncilpodcast at gmail.com. 
You can also find us at facebook.com slash smartcouncilpodcast. Please consider supporting this podcast with a financial donation through patreon.com slash smartcouncil. Our theme music is by Trent Price. Our logo design is by Thomas Moore. Thanks again for listening, and let's keep the conversation going. Thank you.